0: Genesis 3, as we begin our series on the five points of Calvinism, otherwise known as TULIP. Today we begin with total depravity, and we point to the origins of this depraved nature. Genesis 3, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of our God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when we saw the tree, that it was good for food, there was a delight for the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and He said to him, Where are you? And he said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself." He said, "Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I command you not to eat?" The woman said, "The woman. The man said, "The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate." The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this cursed to you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, the dust you will eat, all the days of your life. Oh, what enmity between you and the woman, and between your seat and her seat. Then he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And have eaten from the tree which I command you saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. You are dust. To dust you shall return. And now the woman called his wife's. Name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. The Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden... He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's ask God's help to understand. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember your word all of our days. Would you help us to treasure your word up into our heart and hide it there that we may not sin against you. But we know, Father, that we will sin against you. And so we pray that we would treasure the message of the gospel there as well. That we rejoice in it and delight in it. And that as we receive uh, confirmations and assurance in our soul that you are a favorable God to us because of your grace in Jesus, uh, would you help us, Lord, to then walk in new obedience for your name's sake. Direct us now as we study your word through the Holy Spirit. Open and uncover the meaning of these words, that they might give light to our soul. All this we ask through Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Just over a week ago on Christmas Day, actually, a local story made the national headlines. It wasn't one of those stories that you often hear at this time of the year, which embodies some act of sacrificial giving, which is consistent with uh, the joyful mood and the giving and the charitable spirit, which is to be characteristic of us all around the holidays. Rather, this was a dark story. It was a dark story, a depressing story, a depressing story because it revealed unto us the darkness and depravity of the human spirit. About 11.30 in the city of Covina, a man dressed as Santa Claus, strapped on four pistols, walked up to a home, knocked on the door and immediately... Upon having the door opened unto him by an eight-year-old little girl, he opened fire, shooting her, then shooting several people, some in the back, some in the front, randomly shooting at anybody that moved within the house, and then finally lit the house on fire, killing nine people, and then he took his own life. About that time, halfway around the world, in eastern Congo, the cries of women and children were heard by witnesses who said that members of the Lord's resistance army used machetes to hack in pieces worshipers at a church. But we could scan the headlines uh, in journals for all kinds of examples this morning, I guess, of what we all know to be very true. In fact, as we approach this morning the topic of total depravity, I would argue, and this is a very insightful observation, that if there is any truth in the Bible that bears upon the human condition that all of us can understand whether we're Christian or not, is that man is exceedingly dark and deceived, and he is radically wrong in his heart. There isn't a culture or a city or a nation or a region or a people or a race throughout time or even now in contemporary times that is not touched with the power of human depravity or of sin. Everywhere we go we see murder, theft, violence, greed, adultery, deception, lies. And that's just a short list of the depravity that marks the human race. And yet, in view of all of this evil and wickedness and iniquity in the world, there's only one religion that can give a coherent and logical explanation (laughs) of this dark streak that pervades the entire human race, and that is Christianity. And it is in particular the doctrine of total depravity. That is, every person is touched by sin in every part of their being. And on account of that... We live in a fallen world that's full of wickedness and sin and destruction and rebellion. this morning I want to trace out the roots of that depravity here to uh, the primeval sin. Genesis chapter 3 here. And as we dig into this chapter which sets for us the historical narrative of the origins of sin... In the human race, uh, we want to set up a little bit of the context here as we hear this serpent slithering up to Eve in the garden. Several levels of context, but of course the first level of context that we need in order to understand what's going on here in Genesis 3 is the fact that God has created man. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 and everything within that chapter is structured in such a way that it is heading towards the climax of the chapter which is the creation of Adam. Day after day, we hear God speaking, saying, let it be, and let it be, and let it be, and the text responds, and it was, and it was, and it was. And on the third day, God looked over what he, what he did, what He had performed, what He had created, and He said it was good. The fourth day, He looked over what He had created and done, and He said it was good. And the sixth day, after He had created the beasts of the field, He looked at what He had done, and He said it was good. And then... He created man. And at the end of the chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told not that it was good, but it was very good. Genesis chapter 2 tells us about the wonder of God's creative work when it comes to man, and there's nothing more interesting than to read about the biblical account of how man begins his existence here on earth. And no, it's not as a chimpanzee. It's as a mud pie. You look at 2-7, you see here the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. I told you in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks. He says, and it was, and it was, and it was. After every time He said, let there be, let there be, let there be. Now here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we don't have God speaking anymore. We have God uh, getting down on His hands and knees, as it were, and He is shaping uh, this piece of mud into the structure of the human that He wanted to create in His image. And then, most mysteriously, the text says, He blew into His nostrils the breath of life. God touched the object which was to him the most prized object of all of his creative handiwork. Everything in the text tells us that man is a special creation of God. Everything in the context tells us here that this man, as he comes from the hand of God, is exceedingly blessed... As you scan out from here throughout the rest of the Scripture, what you find about this man is that he was created perfect, that he was righteous, that he was holy, that he was knowledgeable, that he was made in the image of God in every way. He is endowed with all of the attributes of excellence. Important context here because as you hear the devil in the form of the serpent slithering up to Eve and you see the terrible consequences of that encounter, you must realize... That Adam and Eve were not pieces of junk, flawed, incapacitated, unintelligent, naive creatures. We also see more than just God's creation here of Adam, we see a number of things that God has done to bless Adam and Eve, so that they were living within a context of total beatitude. First of all, we're told in verse 16 that God had given Adam abundant provision of chapter 2. He said, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. It's not as if God's provisions were meager. The text tells us that God went out of His way to tell Adam that all that I have created is for you. You sit at the table of life and all of it is for you. Verse 15, we're told that God had also supplied Adam with a wife and instituted marriage. The Word of God says that he noticed that Adam was lonely. He noticed that Adam was lonely. Verse 18 says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. Isn't that marvelous? God has created Adam with all of these capacities, with all these abilities, with all this excellence, and yet he notices that there's something wrong. Adam is by himself. And the first word that we hear God speaking here in chapter 2 is, it's not good that he's alone. And so he makes him a helper that is suitable, somebody that completes him, somebody that makes him whole. And just so that we can verify that this first woman was to Adam everything that his heart longed for. Uh, you see the great parade of animals in verses 19 and 20. Adam is naming them, and he's looking at him. and he's saying fish, and, and dino, dinosaur, and, and giraffe, and elephant, And then it's all of a sudden, it's as if he wakes up from his coma when God uh, put him under in order to take his rib and create Eve. It's almost as he wakes up, he is absolutely overwhelmed with joy, because he sees Eve, and he writes a poem for her. It wasn't an artificial hallmark moment. Adam was overcome with With joy. God had blessed him. And it says that they were joined together. That they were naked and they were not ashamed. He created a social context for his existence so that he would be happy. God gave him a task in verse 15. He said that uh, he was to cultivate and keep the garden. The only thing I want to note there is that word keep does not mean to prune the hedges. It's a military term, Shema, guard. It's to wield a sword to hold off uh, unholy intruders. Just so that you are aware that that is the meaning of that passage, you can confirm that for yourself by looking at verse 24 of chapter 3, where the same word is used of the cherubim who is wielding a flaming sword, turning in every direction, guarding the way of the tree of life. Adam was to guard this garden against unholy intrusion. Now you add to that the command of verse 19, and the pieces of the puzzle are in place to understand chapter 3. Verse 18, rather verse 17. God says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Without taking a whole lot of time to expound the meaning of this tree, and that would be a whole probably separate sermon all to itself, as we would unravel some of the component parts of this, suffice it to say that the tree is basically a test where Adam is not to acquire something, but to do something. He is to discern between good and evil. He is, uh, in his circumstances, set up for a climactic uh, encounter with an evil outside external force. And through that encounter, by guarding the tree and not partaking of it according to the command of God, uh, he would have passed uh, God's test. All the pieces are now in order for us to see here the serpent's question. The serpent's question, you see, in verse 1. The serpent, it says, was more crafty than any beast of the field the serpent comes slithering it's accented that he's crafty I'll come back to that in a moment and he manifests his crafty nature with a crafty question indeed has God said isn't that interesting God is the only one who's autonomous. God is the only one who's sovereign. God is the only one who's divine. And here comes the devil slithering up to the woman. And what is his strategy but to undermine her concept of authority? Indeed, he says. It's emphatic in the original. Indeed, it's, it, it's, a, it's a showstopper for a moment to grab hold of the attention. Indeed, has God said. And now notice the very parts of the question has God said you shall not eat from any tree Well all you got to do to verify whether the devil has it right is just go back and look at what God said He said in verse 16 from any tree you shall eat You see how he comes twisting and deceiving It's not as if he's ignorant The whole force of the question as it emerges in the original is to suggest here that Satan is saying to the woman, Yes, I know what he said. I'm not foolish. But is it reasonable? Is it reasonable that God could give you this entire garden and could bless you and give you all these tools at your disposal and give you a calling and a vocation and make you in His image and give you all these things, but withhold from you this one tree? Is that reasonable? If God is that unreasonable to withhold this tree from you, can you trust Him? You see, it's a frontal attack on the authority of God. And here is Eve's response. And by the way, her response indicates that she is wavering. She said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. See, she understands verse 16. But she has her own twist on verse 17, verse 3. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, nor touch it, or you will die. Now what's wrong with Eve's response? full. First of all, she says uh, that God said you can't touch it, which is an embellishment. Now she is adding to the word. She's already open now to thinking of life and reality in terms of something other than the authority of God's word to her. She is adding to God's word just as Satan has challenged her in that direction already. And then she says, last, it's, it's sort of softly translated in here in the original, or you will die, but in, in the original Uh, it's really clear that she has a softening in terms of what she thinks God is going to do less God. In fact, the Hebrew of verse 17 is emphatic, certainly you will die. Well, Satan goes on to rebut that saying, surely you will not die. He gives his own promises that sound more generous than God's. Surely you will not die. And then in verse 5, he says, God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Now, from here, the text is a sad, downhill narrative of the fall of humanity. Adam capitulates to Satan's question. That's our second point. Adam capitulates. Verse 6 says the woman saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit, ate, gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. You see, the Bible places both of them uh, equally on the hook. Eve eats. But I want you to see here the process and the reasoning uh, that lead her to eat of that tree. Uh, we can see here that she has, through satanic temptation, substituted the authority of God for the authority of herself. Notice verse 6. She saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. She sets up her own criteria, by the way. Is that what you're seeing? She sets up her own criteria. She evaluates reality through the lens of what is reasonable to her. And to what reasonable to her is that the food is good, that it's a delight to the eyes, and it'll make one wise. She becomes autonomous. Interpreting... Reality for herself, rather than in subjection to God's word. By the way, that's just a little bit of a warning to us, isn't it, this morning? We can't repeat the sin of Eve, because we are not in that unique historical context. But isn't that how sin happens in part? Substituting the authority of God's word for our own opinions? Well, it was good. I liked it. It was enjoyable. And besides that, I gained new experiences and insights from following into my sin that I wouldn't have lived before. But it wasn't just that that led her into sin. It's something that is not specifically named in the text, but is obvious as you study throughout the text. She forgot God. She forgot God. Remember, we're answering the question, how in the world could it be that you are created in the image of God, that you are a special creation of God, that Adam, you have experienced being shaped into a mud pie and having the breath of life blown into your nostrils and all of a sudden consciousness emerges within you. You wake up to a paradise. How can it be that you're Eve and you have been taken out of the rib of your husband Adam and you have enjoyed a joyful uh, union and communion? You are made in the image of God. You are righteous and you are holy and you have knowledge and you have all of these divine gifts. You would live in paradise and you would have access to anything that you needed. And yet, you would go against the very God who made that for you. Well, she substituted her own authority in the place of God's. But secondly, she just flat forgot God. It's fascinating here as you read through the context. Every time the narrator of the story, who would be Moses, by the way, every time he narrates something about God, it says, the Lord God. The covenantal name is used. The name Yahweh, the Lord, the God who enters into relationship at a personal level. The Lord God did this. The Lord God formed them. The Lord God made me. He just goes into the text. It's talking and accenting about uh, the personal touch of God. The God who enters into relations with men. And yet, every time you hear Satan or the woman talking, he is referred to as Elohim. God. Powerful creator. But very impersonal. The word connotes just sort of a raw, impersonal power. In other words, when she goes to reach out for that fruit and to do exactly what she'd be tempted to do, she is not thinking about God. She has erased Him from the hard drive. And she has become a God for herself. You know, people have got another important warning for us this morning is that when we face... The possibility for temptation. We better be a lot more like Joseph than Eve. Remember Joseph who was standing before temptation and Potiphar's wife invited to invite to violate God's law and adulterous relationship. He says, how can I do this thing and sin against my God? wasn't that he didn't feel the force of the temptation but what he felt more profoundly was that God was real that God was there and that God loved him and Eve on the other hand if she's even thinking of God is thinking of him as if he were distant impersonal and unreasonable Distant, impersonal, and unreasonable. If that is how you are starting to think of God, as someone who is just withholding from you desires and opportunities that you would like... If you think of God in impersonal, merely powerful terms and forget the fact that He is the God who enters into covenant, the God who has taken upon Himself our flesh in order to redeem us from our sins, the moment you start, start thinking in those impersonal modes of God, you are leaving yourself open for violating His standards. People of God, a very important lesson to learn is don't substitute your authority for the authority of God's Word. And don't substitute an impersonal, distant, and unreasonable God for the God of the Bible. You do that, you're on your way to sin. And that's exactly what they did. They sinned. And sin had devastating immediate effects. Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, I'm going to say something that is probably not what you've heard before, but I really don't believe that nakedness or nudity is the issue here in this verse. Perhaps it's on somewhere on the radar screen, but I want you to notice uh, verse uh, 25. Of chapter 2, it says, The man and his wife were both naked, were not ashamed. Now, since you don't read Hebrew and you don't have a Hebrew Bible in front of you, you would miss what comes next in 3 1. It's not now, it's not the, it's not, it's serpent. And that word serpent, uh, when pronounced, sounds very, very similar to the very last word of verse 25, which is ashamed. One of the things I want you to notice is, verse 25 says, Uh, They were both naked and they were not ashamed. That naked word there is important because when pronounced, it sounds almost exactly like the word crafty which describes the serpent. Let's put these things together. They go through satanic temptation. They substitute their authority for God's authority. They substitute a false God who is impersonal, distant, and unreasonable with the true God who is sovereign, personal, and enters into relationship. They violate the test that they have been given. And what is the first thing they sense about themselves now? They sense characteristics that are not God-like, but what? Serpent-like. I don't think nudity is the issue here. What I think is the issue here is they feel themselves exposed. We can't even begin to understand what this would be like to be made in the image of God, righteous, holy, and knowledgeable, being made in the image of God. And yet at the next moment, all of a sudden experience the unraveling of all that because of our sin. It's as if their conscience has gone into overload level and they realize they are not godlike anymore; anymore. They bear characteristics that are far more serpent-like. And all that interpretation is confirmed by the action that they sewed fig leaves together. They, their first impulse was to cover up what they saw now. They didn't like this serpent-like nature. That they sensed. Then they read and they hid from that by putting on leaves. And then the next thing we're told that they did is they experienced the fear of the Lord. We're talking now about sin's devastation. That's our third point. Sin's devastation. And the first thing is that they begin to feel a serpent likeness. Made in the image of God. Yes, they were. And yes, they still retain it after the fall. But the uh, consciousness and awareness of that is being suppressed now. And what they are sensing is that they are changed. They're different. But notice here they also experience something new as well. The fear of God. Uh, uh, verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves. Now, by the way, uh, this is boxed up in every translation I've consulted. Uh, when you read cool of the day, uh, it sounds like, uh, like God's just out uh, taking a morning stroll in the garden. Just kind of out walking the dog first thing in the morning. But that is a complete mistranslation of what's going on here. The word is rock, spirit, and it's the day, which is used in prophetic imagery to forecast uh, the divine intervention of God in judgment. That's what's going on here. They are sensing something from the coming of the Lord's presence, which is far distinct than anything they've ever encountered before. And now they sense that God is coming to them in justice. And then the Lord God called to the man, verse 9, and said, where are you? That's not because God doesn't know where Adam and Eve are, by the way. It's not as if God is ignorant. He can't see. He doesn't know. He's omniscient. He knows exactly where they are. The calling is the summoning before the divine, a bar of justice. He called to the man, and then they have this exchange. My whole point here is that Adam now, and Eve both manifest a certain fearfulness of God. That's another devastating effect of sin. Not only serpent-likeness, but fear of God and dread of His presence. The next thing that we see here in terms of sin's devastating consequences is the beginning of blame-shifting and, and accusing other people for the problems that are in your life. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, The man said, uh, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the truth. And now, it's very interesting. If you analyze this statement in the Hebrew... Uh, the man's action is the furthest removed from the beginning of the sentence. The first person that is blamed here is the woman. Then God is blamed. And then the not he, he doesn't confess his sin. He, he, he doesn't get honest with God now that he's been exposed for being a sinner. And the woman who you gave... She gave, I ate. And then the, the woman does no better. She said, um, The serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Blame shifting. Verse 16. Let's see another devastating consequence of sin. I wonder if you've seen this one before. This is the penalty phase of the hearing and the trial. God is speaking, first of all, to the serpent. and Now he turns to the woman. Verse 16, to the woman says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. So we know that's another devastating effect of the fall, a consequence of the fall, is that pain, the, the, the childbirth would be painful. And then, uh, secondly, this is uh, another devastating consequence uh, Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Domestic disorientation. Uh, If you understand this verse correctly, in context, what God is saying to the woman is not that you will desire to depend on your husband. Wrong. Like you're helpless and weak, and you want your husband to just take care of you. That's not what it's saying. The desire here is the desire to dominate your husband. As a part of the curse, uh, God uh, says, I'm ordaining conflict in the home. Right where he, uh, in chapter 2, had said marriage is good. And they were happy and enjoying each other's presence and company. And the woman was completing the man. And they were living happily ever after before the Lord. And now God says to the woman, Your desire will be for your husband. That is, you will desire to rule your husband. And here is what's going to happen to you in consequence. He will rule you. Now, I bet none of us have found that to be true in our homes. That there's marital conflict. But you see here, it's rooted in the fall. The woman will seek to usurp the man's authority because he's supposed to be in charge in the home by God's command. And in order to get her in control, the man is going to sin against God and against his wife by seeking to dominate her, which is not what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to serve her. And so, if you want to trace the roots of marital conflict in this world, which, by the way, was at the root of that devastating killing in Covina about a week ago, it was a domestic dispute. It's rooted in the devastating effects of the fall. Verse 17 through 19, God says there is going to be conflict in Adam's experience. He is going to till the ground and eat. But only by the sweat of his brow. And then finally, 19, he says, And then you're going to return to that ground, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death as a consequence of the fall. So let's see, what do we have so far? Uh, We have serpent likeness, we have uh, quaking in fear before the Lord. We have blame shifting, and we have pain in childbirth, we have domestic disorientation, we have curse upon the ground, and we have death. Is there anything worse than that? We'll just start looking through uh, the rest of Genesis 4 in terms of just the nearby chapters. And you see, first of all, in Genesis chapter 4, we have the first homicide. As a result of a domestic dispute, Cain kills Abel. In Genesis chapter 5, you have the first obituary ever written in the world. A whole series of him. And you'll notice that there is a refrain that occurs seven times in chapter 5. and And he died, 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 and he died. And then you'll notice in Genesis chapter 6 that God was grieved that he'd made man because the Word of God tells us in verse 5, He saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil continually. The commentary does not end there, however. We come forward to the time of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. He explains the reason why men do what they do is because the heart is evil. He says, for from within... Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. He says all these evil things come from within. By the way, the context there is the Pharisees who are pretending that as long as we keep the environment clean around us, we won't do bad things. What does that sound like? All the experts say that today. And Jesus says, no, it's from what's... Inside. Paul expounds this universal, total comprehensive effect of sin upon humanity. in Romans chapter three, 10 following. He says that depravity is universal. Verse 10, there is none righteous, not one. He says that sin affects the mind. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. He says sin affects the religious orientation of man. There is none who seeks after God. He says that sin affects our actions. Verse 12, there is none who does good, not one. He says sin affects our mouths and our words. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Sin affects their hands and feet. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. And number 7, He said, sin affects the entire disposition. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18. What is that? That's what we call total depravity. There is the explanation for why bad things happen in our fallen world. Every person, every aspect of their being is touched. By the corruption of sin. You say, how can that be? It's a long time ago since Adam lived. Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. How can it be that so many people are touched by sin? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 12. He says, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. You see, Paul says that sin is universal because of the one sin of this one man. But he doesn't quite explain it there in verse 12. How it could work that way. You'll notice that he begins a comparison. He says, just as. See that? Therefore, just as. Now, if you look through 13, uh 14. 15, 16, and 17, you won't find a comparison. The comparison is not completed. But then notice verse 18. So then as... Notice that, that's a comparison, right? So then as... Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life for all men. You see, the comparison is completed, isn't it? Verse 19, For as, see the comparison beginning there? Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Again, completes the comparison. In other words, the comparison between two men is the backbone of this passage. And Paul says there's one Adam, that's the Adam back in the Garden of Eden, who was made in the image of God, Righteous, holy, knowledgeable. And then there's this Adam, Jesus Christ. You see, God has set up the entire human race so that God would deal with all humanity through this Adam and then this Adam. Their actions are representative. See that? That's the only way you can read this. And by the way, that representative nature of Adam emerges in Genesis chapter 3 in a number of different places. But the biblical explanation for how it is that sin is in every person, in every city, in every state, in every country, and in every region, throughout every period of church history and world history, until the end of the age, is because God ordained to deal with humanity through Adam. That's how it can be. That there is no one that does good. There is no one who understands. That there is no one who seeks after God. And that because out of everyone's heart, evil thoughts, thefts, murders, and adulteries flow, is because Adam represented... Every member of the human race. And his sin is imputed. And his sin is passed on to every person who is born from him. Well, as obvious as the truth of universal depravity is, that every every culture, every group of people is touched by it, guess what? We don't tend to like talking about that. We don't tend to even want to conceive of ourselves that way. As providence would have it, I came across an article just last week in the New York Times entitled, Heaven for the Godless? mark. Heaven for the Godless. It was a survey done among residents in the United States. of Americans said it doesn't matter what religion you belong to, as long as you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. 50% of those polled said that even atheists would go to heaven, as long as they were moral. And 50% of all Christians surveyed said that faith in Jesus was not a requirement for heaven. Just being good is. You see, we don't like to accept the biblical explanation I want you to hear the Bible's resounding answer to that. That if it was up to you to be good in order to get to heaven, we would all fail. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. Now here is the hard part of what Paul says. It is not... Able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see that? There isn't anyone good. And because there isn't anyone good, because they were all represented by Adam in the Garden of Eden, without the help of God, no one will ever go to heaven. That brings me back to Genesis chapter 3. I don't want to leave you hopelessly depressed this morning. After all, we are to proclaim both the law and the gospel. Every person except one. I want you to see this in verse 15. God is speaking to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now notice this. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. You see what God does here? God promises a Redeemer who will crush that serpent and the power which stood behind it. God promises a warrior. God sovereignly and graciously promises a seed who will bring redemption for those who have fallen into sin. You see, that's the only way it can be. Because total depravity not only means that you are affected in every part of your being with sin, that every person who has ever lived or who will ever live or who now lives has been affected in every part of their being by sin. So there's not just one little component, uh, department somewhere within us that's still good and reserved for God and if we just exercise that, everything will be okay. And not only means that, but it also means this. If you uh, believe what the Bible says and it's very clear about the fact that we are totally depraved, then that also means... That salvation must be by grace alone. Salvation must be by grace alone. Salvation must absolutely be by the sovereign, gracious working of God alone. And it's the failure of false religion and false gospels to accept that. The sad truth is is that there are too many who rush to make fig leaf coverings for themselves Pretending that a false gospel will get them to heaven, and trusting that the only path to salvation is through this champion that God promises here in verse 15, who will bruise the head of the serpent and gain a decisive victory. This morning, people of God, if we confess that we are totally depraved, all hope is not lost. Because God sets forth a pathway to Him. God gives us a Savior who unravels all of the devastation of sin. And it's Christ. So if you want forgiveness, if you want salvation, if you want a reconciled relationship with God, if you want to go to heaven, there's one way. It's found right here in the same story that teaches us the origins of depravity. It teaches us the origins of the gospel. And as you follow that seed throughout the Bible, you find that God made good on His promise. And it's in Christ. And it's through His cross. And the good news this morning for all of us who confess total depravity is that there is a way back to God. It's through the cross of Christ. And if we clutch that cross by faith and make no claims to righteousness on our own, the promise of God through Jesus Christ is He will give us rest. God help us to lay hold of His salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy which is shown to sinful people. we pray this morning, Heavenly Father, that as we contemplate our own depravity, that we will not be led into false hopes, false religion, or false gospel, that we would cling to the true gospel, the true Christ, and the true path of salvation. And that is uh, the flesh and blood Savior Jesus, who died for us and then rose again for our salvation. By your grace, Lord, help us to hold fast to him. May we find our hope realized in his perfect work. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.